Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 11, Just This Once Everybody Lives. This week we're discussing season 1, episode 10 of Doctor Who, The Doctor Dances, and season 1, episode 10 of Buffy, Nightmares. As always, we suggest you watch these episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So, it's Buffy's turn to start this week, um, and uh, we're going to start with some production notes. They're not always super relevant to, you know, the episode of the story, but sometimes they are. Sometimes it's nice to talk about patterns in, you know, certain writers or certain, you know, yeah. yep. kind of what's going on behind the scenes can inform you of what's going on in the story. Um so this one, I wanted to kind of point out that um, for this episode, Nightmares, um, the story is credited to Joss Whedon, um, whereas the teleplay, like the actual script or screenplay, um, was written by David Greenwalt. Um, and I thought that's kind of interesting. I mean, the way they, the way they kind of run these shows is... Um, especially in America, I think, is you kind of have a staff of writers. And so you'll mm -hmm. have you'll right. have the showrunner and then you'll have the staff writers. So you'll have like a writer's room where it's kind of like everyone sits at a big long table and just talks about the episodes and the stories and the, and the shape of the season. So it's a little bit hard to tell. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even when a script is credited to someone, it's kind of hard to tell where one stops and the other begins. You know, what was an idea that was born in the writer's room? What's an idea that came from the head writer? What is specific to the person who wrote the script? It all gets jumbled together. So right. when they credit it to someone, you always kind of have to take that with a little grain of salt. But um, at the same time, it's interesting that they specify that, you know... I mean, it's almost like, in a way, you could say that every story is by a group of people, and then the script is written by one specific person. So if they go out of their way to specify that this is a story by Joss Whedon, that seems significant, because it yeah. almost should be like a given. Right. Um, what it suggests to me is that uh, this is a story that Joss specifically wanted to tell, that this mm -hmm. is a story that he felt it was important, you know in the story or in the first season that he was like, okay, in this hour, we're going to do this, you know? And right. then David Greenwald went, went about writing the actual scenes and dialogue and everything. Right. So, right. um, so that's what it says to me. I don't know if you have a yeah. different or more nuanced opinion. Maybe you can tell me more about David Greenwald and, uh, yeah, yeah. any thoughts you have on that. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, of course, you, you picked right up on that. Um, and, and I think that's fairly common, like you said, when, when you get, like, the showrunner, which Joss is the showrunner for Buffy for, I want to say, through season five. I'm not entirely sure how long, but through a number of seasons, you know, he is the showrunner. Oh, he didn't, he didn't continue to be? I thought he was for the whole thing. Um, I... Well, and I, I, I may have to, to I may have to come back to that like that may be something that becomes more important when he's I know he's not for the entire series I'm not sure exactly when he stops being the sh the showrunner, okay. um, but 
he is at this point definitely the executive producer, the showrunner. Yeah. And, you know, main right. main story guy if we're using right. Buffy right. speak. He's the guy. Um, so maybe for so any maybe there's listeners who don't know much about TV. So the showrunner is really the head writer and executive producer. He's the guy who decides the shape of the season. So he mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily physically write every individual episode, but he says, "Where are we going?" Right. What's the big picture? Right. So we get um when we get a story by Joss, yeah, of course. I mean, he and he and he is the creator of the show. So he, yeah. you know, when we get the story from him, one, you're right. It's definitely he's saying, "This is my story. I want yeah. to tell it. Let's right. go out." But it's I think more weighted. I think too, we can we can get we can make the assumption that generally it's going to have, you know, a stronger mythological feel. Now, in this story. We get that within sort of the immediate opening because it opens with the master and Buffy uh-huh. facing off. So, I mean, that's not like a huge secret. But I think I think just sort of being attentive to that, you, you know, we can say, yeah, let's let's pay attention here because we are going to get, I think, maybe a little bit deeper into the mythology of things or, or at least the the larger arc of things. You know, this isn't another puppet show episode like we're not, <laughs> you, you know. It's not a throwaway, yeah. Right, it's not a one-off monster of the week. Yeah. There, There is a monster of the week, certainly, but it's not like, yeah, it's not only that, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, definitely that with, with the story being by Whedon. And we know now, obviously, looking at this from, you know, having it, it already having been produced and whatever, we know that we're coming on the end of the season. And mm-hmm. and that's gonna be a repetitive thing. At the beginning and end of this of each season, you're gonna see the story and and quite often the screenplay itself written by Joss or, or mm-hmm. at least the story by Joss. So and that's you know, and that ha- that's kinda ties into the same thing with the significance of the mythological arcs. They're gonna be started and tied up um, you know, with each season. This isn't one of the things, and, and I'm actually I'm going to mention this because we posted on our Facebook page um, just yesterday that um, that essay about uh, stories, and, and I'm sorry, I can't I can't remember who wrote that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, wasn't that interesting? Yeah, uh, uh, just kind of about the the you know TV how mythology how TV and, mythology yeah. has come about, and 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 how um, you, you know how. I mean, the the guy who wrote it was complaining, and gosh, I can't. It was try- a lot of I, it was I, a I'm, lot of bitching, but I feel like, uh, <laughs> but I feel like there were some interesting things in there. I don't yeah, know the, that I agree with everything that he said, but no, there's definitely some interesting things in there. Um, and yeah, you're right. I, I think one of the things that so so sorry the the review was actually by. Um, uh, the, the the essay or, or the article is called "The Cosmology of Serialized Television." Um, at the American Reader, and it was by David Auerbach, and and yeah, basically he's he's talking about shows like he mentions Buffy. He talks about shows like um, Mad Men, you know, which is on now, and Dexter. Um, he refers to some other shows like Six Feet Under and mm-hmm. and and a few others that I've not seen. Um, well, actually, I have seen Six Feet Under, but other shows that I've not seen, <laughs> um, and and just kind of talks about the difference you know, of the steady state model uh-huh. using shows like um, The Fugitive and, and some other 
shows like that where it really was sort of episode of the week or monster mm-hmm. of the week type shows. And then how, you know, especially starting with like X-Files and, and some of these other shows and then Lost, how you kind of have these growing mythologies that become more complex. Um, and and in his view, how they don't really work, especially he criticized Lost quite, oh, yeah. quite explicitly. Like um, but the, but the also, paradigm of bad mythology. <clears throat> And, yeah, yeah, but also X Files, and yeah, I mean, you know, um, of course, he, he refers to Prometheus, uh, the movie which right, Lindelof right. wrote, and, and which, yeah. which which Kat, you know, that I did not particularly like that movie. So I, I know you're not alone in that opinion. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, just kind of how how some of these mythologies don't work. But yeah, one one of the things that um, was brought up by. L.B. Gale, which I believe you posted to, to our Facebook page as well, um, was with shows like Buffy, is you're not working with, you're not working in the same way with Lost, where it's an overarching mythology that has to be wrapped up at the end. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, it, I, there is kind of that. I think she might go a little too far the other way. Uh-huh. Um, but, I, but she is definitely right that in the seasonal, each season kind of has its own arc that gets... Sure started and re- resolved for the most part there's yeah. some bleed through of course because of how things affect different characters but um, right and- well, she, the way she, it, I'll be fascinated to see because the way she states it was that with one or two exceptions it's almost like every season of Buffy could have been the last one that it re- maybe that's going too far but she, in her view the season reaches a sort of completion at yeah. the end absolutely and 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 so knowing that we're coming upon the end of season one here, you know, we have three episodes left, including this one that we're talking about now yeah. to, to wrap things up. Like it, it just makes sense. And so you, you see Joss being the one to kind of go into that. Man, there's like, I, now that we got talking on this whole cosmology of mythology, I, <laughs> I wanted to like, there's so much more that I have to talk about with that. There's actually a really interesting, um, economic, uh, uh, professor. Well, I don't know if he's a professor or whatever, Tim Harford, he wrote The Undercover Economist, um, who did an article in the Financial Times a few months ago about um, the interplay of, of, like, recording devices, initially like VCRs and then now, you know, DVRs and that sort of thing, um, but also with how shows, um, how that, how, how people share things in those types yeah. of shows and, and, yeah. and how that becomes a big part of kind of creating these mythologies we, you know well, and that's why you see shows like lost coming about when the dvr gets started i mean you see the effect of the te- of the technology on the way people and now people new shows just assume right. that you can well, record things and you can go back and catch up and that's and, what allows them to do these really complex and, mythologies and that's one side of it the technology definitely is one side of it but also the sharing side of it because you get when when buffy to bring it back around to our actual topic here you know when buffy is going you get people starting blogs and forums yeah. and stuff right, online yeah, like yeah. you know you get all this up and and some of that happened you know earlier with x-files and stuff well i mean x-files has some overlap with buffy but only a couple years right. i think at the most right but the um, internet is clearly but, the biggest thrust but this behind is, this sort of complex mythological TV. right right because you get that sharing because it's not just yeah. you know in 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 your own circle kind of before there was the sharing, you know, the what, water cooler. What, yeah. yeah, what was it? it? Was either water cooler at work or you know, 
the college dorm room or yeah, you know your yeah. your high school friends like and it was very limited now yeah. it's worldwide and yeah. and you can kind of share those things so it yeah. it you, you don't have to have that sort of even if you missed an episode you can instantly get an update on yeah. what happened and why certain things are important yeah wow went way on beyond talking about <laughs> production of this particular episode <laughs> i wanted to talk about so so Whedon, yes he comes in he says this is the story i want we're getting into some of the more mythological stuff we see the master and he has a significant point here that we'll talk about later but david greenwald i wanted to talk about so first of all um what may not be obvious is that he is the co-producer of buffy in these first few seasons um with joss so he is right there you know with him he's top of the line and we will see other episodes where you have story by whedon teleplay or screenplay by david greenwald like this is this is going to be a common thing because they're the two kind of top dogs, you know, they're running the show and, and, um, we get that. I wanted to point out that the two other episodes that we've seen by Greenwald already were teacher's pet. Um, so, um, there's an interesting point in this episode where there's a reference to Xander noticing the attire of his teacher. <laughs> I don't know if right. this, this yeah. becomes a common theme with Greenwald or not. Greenwald I, maybe, trope, yeah. maybe we'll have to keep our eyes open for that. But, yeah. um, the other episode that we saw that's actually a little more significant, one to the mythology, but also for down the road, is Angel. Uh-huh. Um, so that was a Greenwald episode. And that episode was actually, um, <clears throat> no, I'm sorry. So the reason why that's important is because Greenwald, you know, I mean, he tells the story about Angel. Later, when Angel becomes a spinoff series, David Greenwald and Joss Whedon are actually co-creators, and David Greenwald is heavily involved with that as well. Okay. So, so I mean, Angel is kind of Greenwald's guy. Like he's, you know, right, right. He, 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 you know, he. I mean, and obviously, Whedon as well. But like, yeah, yeah. You know, but, we kind of, we kind of can, can see that those. Maybe that was a, a, a plot point that they sort of developed together was the right. Angel subplot and, and arc and everything. And and I want to tie in. So one other thing is that now we have a current show um, that's currently running on TV, Grimm, which is produced by David Greenwald. And it's very much it's it's very much a similar type of it has the mythology and the monster of the week type of feel, you know, that are kind of meshed together. But it's for anyone who's seen Angel, you might see more of the the series angel in grim than right. perhaps buffy in grim but you still you still have kind of these mix of fantasy world and mundane world and and the sort of it, it's more of a police procedural kind of style i would uh-huh. say than than buffy is per se although there's some similarities between those styles here but yeah but it, um, it's more of his sensibility than yeah than yeah, Joss's. yeah. De- definitely um has some tie-ins there so the other um thing i just sort of wanted to point out real quick as far as production notes is the director this episode was directed by bruce seth green who is no relation to seth green uh-huh. um and and he he's also directed two episodes before one of them being teacher's pet which was also written by david greenwald so we uh-huh. kind of get our first mix of the same writer director yeah. team here yeah. um and then the other one bruce seth green directed was the pack Okay. Uh, with, uh, you know, where Xander goes feral. So, anyway, that's was, like, I think we've talked way longer than we intended to, maybe, about all that. But but I do think it's, but important. it's important. I think yeah. it's relevant to 
you know, kind of understand, you know, how these things come about and kind of see where um, some of this stuff comes in. So yeah. I'm going to actually kick it back to you because I know you wanted to talk um, now about kind of the tone and, and the yeah. fear of... Well, that's interesting that it's the same director as the pack because I think these... I mean, for me, I'd be surprised if other people didn't feel the same way, but they're the they're the scariest ones so far of the season, I think. Hmm. Um, the pack, I thought... Or at least the creepiest. The creep, I thought ain't. maybe the pack was more creepy and disturbing. Like, it wasn't necessarily... This, I thought, was scary. Like, it had more of the traditional scare, you know, mm -hmm. of, like running away from things and fear and jumps and mm -hmm. nightmarish and kind of yeah. weird and abstract. And it was more kind of scary. The pack was more just disturbing, you know, mm. more just is sort of violent and visceral, you know, so yeah. not necessarily high terror. Maybe that was horror and this is terror. If you can kind of get the yeah, difference like between this the is two. More yeah. suspense and jumpiness Jump than tension. And yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Because you know, than, like, and that by, was more the kind of like primal yeah. horror of what people are capable of and things like that. Right, especially because after the first few minutes of the episode, you know that there's more coming, but you don't know yeah. what it is. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, we catch on before the characters do right. to what's going on. I it's, think it's and it's and even in I mean, even though I've seen the episode before, it has that feel. I think that we've talked about before here. If not, uh, uh, maybe we can talk about it. But um, the C.S. Lewis uh, idea of surprisingness, even when yeah. you're not actually surprised, yeah. because yeah, yeah. you kind of know what's coming, but it still has that feel of, you know, no, don't go there, or yeah. no, don't don't pick up that Xander that candy bar, that Xander bar. I almost said <laughs> that, that 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 candy bar, Xander. <laughs> don't pick that up. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's an evil clown behind the. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, um, but um, and the way that it's shot too. I mean, the cinematography becomes more conceptual and more dreamlike the further the episode goes on. Like it starts out looking like any other episode, and then the more they get into the dream, and the way Giles puts it, the more reality is fading into the dream world. Yeah, the the yeah. colors and the and the angles and everything just becomes more less realistic. And, and more and more high concept and sort of visually abstract and everything. And and the loss of any sense of of your surroundings because yeah. you go from you know, you know like Buffy has that one moment where they walk sure through the hallway, the yeah. yeah, and then suddenly they're in a field and they walk through the hedges and they're in a nighttime yeah, exactly. you know cemetery. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so yeah, the fact <clears throat> that the it's like you're in a shifting maze. And, you know, and you walk through a door and you're somewhere else. Like, yeah, it has the dreamlike yeah. when, quality. When did they put a cemetery in across the street? When did they make it night across the street? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. The cemetery is the least disturbing part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> particular no, the example. The fact that there's, like, this cloud surrounding <laughs> it and it's night inside. Um, yeah, no, really, really cool. Um, I like the way it was shot a lot. Um Actually, to make another C.S. Lewis connection, um, I don't know whether they would have read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader or not. They could have easily come up with this idea without having read it. But, but there is a connection there that one of, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, they sail, you know, they're sailing out away from Narnia 
into the sea and they come to all these different islands, um, which have different sort of, each island is different. Um, so one of them is this island of dreams, which sounds wonderful. Everyone is, oh, the island of dreams, isn't this great? And the guy who's been marooned there says, no, you don't understand. Think about dreams that you've had. Um, right. And then everyone realizes, Yeah, we need to crap, sail away. I actually don't want to be in the world right. of my dreams because right. dreams are are, you know, I mean, not even dreams that aren't nightmares are still unsettling and creepy and mm -hmm. terrifying. And yeah, then they're... when you think about some of the nightmares you've had, you right. realize how horrible that could be. Yeah. Um, dreams are weird and irrational. And yeah, yeah. nobody really wants that. <laughs> no, even the, even the good ones, you know, so um, so kind of an interesting Lewis connection there. Um, so then, yeah, I mean. So I guess, I mean, they start out talking about fear. Mm. The master begins yes. the episode by talking about fear, which was interesting. I kind of had to watch it twice to really understand whether or not the master was behind this whole dream state thing, but he isn't. No. So he just kind of, because I wasn't sure. But he takes advantage of it. For he sure. takes <laughs> advantage of it. And he yeah. seems to sense it coming because right. he's talking about it and says something like there's something going on up there you know so he's definitely exploiting it but he's not like inducing this magical dream state um no. but but he he has a sense of it because he's talking about fear and what the nature of fear is so he has some interesting points like um that you know the power of fear and that we're defined by what we fear um, and it's interesting that, you know, as a vampire, he specifically says that he fears the cross. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not, he doesn't fear the pain that it causes. So if he touches it, it burns him. That that's right. a tangible thing that he can understand and control. That he says that it, it confounds him. So the implication being that what it, he doesn't understand what the cross means. It's the antithesis of what he understands. So we fear what we don't understand mm. um, and what we can't control. Yeah. And that's kind of what we see with all of, you know, with all of the dreams that we get for the specific characters. It's not just, it's not just, you know, the, the reality of the pain. It's that what does it symbolize for them? Um, right. That, and, they, that they feel powerless in front of. Yeah. And, and yeah, and fear is very much, uh, a, you know, coming from the root of, of not understanding or of ignorance or, you know, um, confusion. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and I think you're right. I think we do see that in everything. You know, it, I, I wanted to pick up on a point that you that you just made about the master and kind of the, the whole you know idea that he's taking advantage but not causing. And I think that's that's interesting because that that kind of describes the Hellmouth in general. Like you get all of these, you know, the master is just one right. type of evil and the vampires are just one type of evil. But you have all of these other things that, as we've seen, are not connected to the master in any way. Or at least we're not we're not led to believe like he's the master, but he's only really the master of a small sect of vampires. <laughs> like, right, you know, yeah. like, you know, he's he's. A petty crime lord, kind of in a way. I mean, he's a very old and right. very powerful not, one, but like he's not Satan. He's not like the king of right. all. There yeah, we're was not... evil before and above him. Yeah, and 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 I think that that's that's an important point to make because I think 
one, I think we get the idea that, you know, there are these sort of individual things, but but they do kind of recognize their own kind in a way, if I can say it that way. Yeah. Like, you know, he's yeah, he's totally willing. Like, hey, here's here's an evil situation that I can take advantage and use to my own yeah. evil, evil deeds, you know, and, and kind of jump on that. So I I did want to kind of pick up on that and just kind of be a little more explicit about that. Like that that is sort of a running thing throughout the series. Like, uh-huh. you know, we do get this hellmouth and yes, Buffy is the vampire slayer, but you know, there's a lot more out there that you know, sort of takes advantage of just sort of the situations. And, and there will be other times where we'll have these kind of fake outs. Uh, like we had the fake out in Teacher's Pet with the um, fork guy, you know, like yeah. we thought, you, you know, he could be the, the monster of the week. And he turns out to be, you know, a weakling guy who runs away from the true monster of the week, you right. know, kind right. of thing. So um, anyway, just kind of wanted to be more a little explicit about that. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the fear nightmares, totally the masters, um, his, his, his one statement there where he's talking about fear and he says, um, uh, well, he says fear is in the mind. It's, It's the most powerful force in the human world. But then he goes on to say, if I can face my fear, it cannot master me. And of course that's foreshadowing the entire rest of the episode you know like you know talking about and it's interesting to see which characters are able to kind of come to that realization on their own xander my gosh that was like my favorite xander moment in like the whole show so far is when he turns around and punches out that clown (laughs) yes (laughs) i was so proud of him yeah 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 no exactly right and and he is Right, you would. I mean, you're not expecting him to no, kind of be the one to face up to his own no. fear. Yeah, and and I think that's great. Whereas Buffy completely breaks down when yeah. she is there with her father and and her dream father, her nightmare father. Yeah. Um. You know, and he's telling her everything that's wrong yeah. with her and everything that's the reason why she's the cause of the divorce of her situation of, you know, all everything that's going on, she's the fault and, and how, you know, why couldn't she be better? Yeah. <laughs> um, which are of course all of her own fears, just except that they're being mouthed to her from her father, Somebody from, else, yeah. from, yeah. from someone she loves and care for, cares for and would hope that she, you know, would hope that holds some esteem for her. Right. Right. Well, um, it's confirmation of what she fears. It's, Confirmation right. from the source who would be able to tell her to definitively, yes, it um, was your fault. And and she does overcome that in a way, but, like, in the moment, she she just completely loses it. Like, she's just yeah. like, why are you telling me this? Why, why is this happening? Um, and it's only through seeing Billy that she is able to go, um, you know, kind of, kind of get work through that um so anyway the the yeah i don't i don't have a broader point than that but it is interesting to kind of see those different points and we can kind of go through and talk about the different nightmares because i think we get some really interesting Mm -hmm. um character development um throughout so yeah um well, is there anyone in particular you want to make sure we start with well well i guess you know it's interesting that because you kind of, it's not till you 
kind of know what's going on that you realize that there's all these little things kind of going on behind the scenes. Uh So I I was thinking maybe let's start out with some of the minor characters. (laughs) Okay. Like Cordelia. Like Cordelia. So (laughs) do you know Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana? Is that a reference that means anything Uh, to you? I'm not familiar with that, I don't think. Any uh, classic SNL fans out there? That was a Gilda Radner character who had like this big hair. Oh, okay. Yes, 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 yes. That's what her hair makes me think of. But um, (laughs) yeah, no, her her things are all about her image. Oh yeah. So it's it's crazy hair and being forced into the chess club and by extension the uncool, right? Geek. Right. No, no, I'm not on the chess team. Yeah. So, yeah. So Cordelia's fears, as far as we know, don't go a lot deeper than that. No, no, they don't. At this point, anyway. <laughs> no, and, and that's, I mean, of course, and that's sort of the comic relief, you know, going Absolutely. out. You know, yeah. from, from the other more serious yeah. Um, yeah. fears yeah. that people are having, which, you know, is kind of Cordelia's role at this point, anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, is, is to provide that. You know, like, uh, you know, um, was it, was it teacher's pet where she, where she calls it and says, wait a minute, you're wearing my dress or one of those episodes where, you know, there's like something really serious going on and it's like, oh yes, I wish, I wish, or I'm glad we don't have her problems, you know, it's like. Yeah, well she, they think she overhears something about vampires and really all she cares about is that someone is wearing the same dress as her. Right. Umpires. I said umpires. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Um. But, um, the, yeah. you know, but then we get we get some other, well, of course, there's the kid in the sunglasses whose mommy comes to school. Yeah, like the biker kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Embarrassed in front of his friends, yeah. Um, that kind of thing. But then, then we, of course, get some of the more serious one. There's, there's Wendell, which is kind of the first point where we realize that, you know, something strange is going on with the, yeah. with the spiders coming out. And we get, we get the tie back to his, um experience with owning spiders and not that and and what i found the spiders it's the it's the guilt and the revenge coming back to get him and that's that's what i found interesting about about his thing there is 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 you know the idea that it's not just we're not just talking about scary things like we're not just talking about monsters like like the anointed one the kid you know at the beginning tells a master oh i was scared of monsters but yeah but actually our fears can often be, you know, based on the things that we love or based on the things that we care about or or want to happen, either because they don't happen the way we expected them to or wanted them to or because we feel like we failed, you know, yeah. and which is clearly where Wendell's come from. You know, I, I don't hate spiders. I love spiders. And, they hate and me. now they're angry at me because I, yeah. you know, allowed them to be killed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, of course, we kind of get into so so kind of the other one, which um, stands out, of course, is Laura, who is the girl who is attacked by the ugly man um, right. in, in right. the basement. She goes down to have smoke, but that's that's not her. That's nightmare. not her dream, right? No. That's not her nightmare, um, right? Like everyone's nightmares are coming to get them, but Billy's nightmare is coming to get everybody because yeah. it's his. He's the root of of the projection so it kind of has more power than everyone else's is sort of specific to them whereas his is just wreaking havoc on anything and everything right right and now i thought that was interesting the idea of the ugly man because 
I mean, really, the ugly man is the coach, right? I mean, it's right. this scary adult who they kind of gloss over the fact. I mean, Billy kind of confronts him at the end with saying, like, you put this unfair pressure on me, it wasn't my fault, whatever, but this guy beat him unconscious. I mean, really. Right. right. It's more than well, just, oh, you made me feel bad and you abused this kid emotionally. He right. beat this kid into a coma. So right. the ugly man was an interesting sort of physicalization of that, that it's not just emotional abuse. It's like this monstrous man yeah. which is going to beat the living daylights out of you yeah well it's kind of like you, you sometimes get in like movies or, or tv shows where like you see the inner self of a person you yeah, know and it's like, like exactly like, like this is like the manifestation like of yeah. of his spirit or his uh personality or whatever and yeah. and of course interesting that his um uh, arm is, is like, like a, a club. Yeah, it looks like a baseball like a bat. baseball bat, yeah. Yeah, and so, of course, the implication there being that, it, yeah, he wasn't, not that it's any better, but he's not using, you know, his fists. He's yeah. grabbing weapons to beat yeah. this kid. Yeah. Um, and, of course, and the other implication being, like, has, has this happened before? Who else has he done this with? Right, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, or, or at least the question, not, I mean... This seem, you know, is this a first escalation and maybe they've nipped it in the bud or have there been other kids, you know, yeah. that have been treated this way by him? Um, yeah. 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 So also sort of the the idea that that I find interesting, too, is is that. You know, you kind of have you have the vocalization of the doctor that um, that tell that initially tells Buffy and Giles about the kid and he's like you know someone's got to catch this guy but at the same time the idea is that everybody else is dealing with their own stuff right yeah I mean they're dealing with their own nightmares and dealing with their own problems and and nobody really has a way to or you know the time or inclination or the perception perception or perceptiveness to um really see what's going on with Billy. I mean, obviously he's in a coma. He can't talk or whatever. But, I mean, if this isn't the first time that this coach did something to him or to one of the, you know, one of his teammates or some, you know, past kid in a past team, you know, like there's there's this idea kind of running around that, like, it's going on right under their noses. And that's kind of like every parent's fear, right? It's like you hear about these stories of, Oh, we never thought so and so would do that. Or, you know, oh, I I just left him alone. He was with his coach. Or, you know, yeah. like, you know, these yeah. these sort of horrific stories about yeah. things that that just happen to kids. And 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 you wonder like and and you know, it's always easy, easy to sort of judge, well, you know, what parent would let their kid do X or do Y? But, you know, there is a lot of trust kind of placed in these you know, in coaches and teachers and whatever. And and for good reason, for the most part most of them are great people, but there's, you know, there's still these stories about, yeah, you, you know, people who do these things. And, and it's because people are dealing with their own stuff. It's because everyone has their own nightmares that they have to kind of handle. And, and, and that's and, a nice, that's a nice tie into the, the lesson what they're learning in school is active listening. So right. it's almost like, you know, they yes. all have to deal with their own nightmares, but what they need to do is listen to the kid and help him and mm-hmm. in helping him it helps everybody you know gets you out of your own stuff 
into right. actively helping somebody else. Right. Especially a kid who's, you know, defenseless and who needs help. Yeah. Well, and, and also just e- even sort of broadening it out from that, having a more empathetic attitude in general yeah. to realize that everybody is going through their own stuff. And like, yeah. you know, the things that we see as being, you know, bad characteristic or something in someone else may come from a root of something more serious or something yeah. that that is, you know, um, something that if someone had someone who really listened to them, like they would maybe be able to get beyond that. Yeah. And and there are the few instances like where Xander turns around and is able to kind of confront <laughs> his own, you know, his own nightmares on a, you know, on on a level of of himself, and he's the one who comes to realize that hey, you know, this is it. But that just doesn't happen most of the yeah. time. It, it seems. I mean, this is the implication in in sort of the story anyway. Is that you know people are always kind of dealing with their own stuff, and I think that that applies quite well <laughs> to yeah. kind of the real world. Yeah. Um, Anyway, there was another interesting Xander thing, which is kind of just under the surface. They don't ever really, but this whole Nazi thing, because he makes a comment, <laughs> yeah. because he he says he's not afraid of spiders. That's right. not nightmarish for him. And he says, now if Nazis crawled all over my face, um, and then <laughs> yeah. right before the clown comes, when he's picking up the candy bars, just very quietly, <laughs> nobody points it out. On the wall are these spray-painted swastikas. Mm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, they don't ever really confront... So I don't know if it's just... Is Sander Jewish? And that's like... Or is it... I don't know if that's hugely significant, but I thought that was an interesting... They just kind of slipped that in under the radar. This, yeah. This Nazi theme. Um, I mean, yeah. and then the clown comes, and that's clearly a more important thing. A, a knife-wielding psychotic clown is more immediately right terrifying but you, um you know that's interesting. I thought that I, was a kind of funny little they just stuck in that little motif and they don't really do anything with it yeah i don't i don't know that there's anything particular about nazis and xander later in the series i don't remember anything specific offhand so that'll be yeah. but interesting just, if, and, if and we I see really more care if they do it just added this little layer like just the idea that there's yeah. more that everyone isn't just afraid of one thing, you mm-hmm. know, because Sander gets several things. He gets the clown, he gets being naked and all the girls laughing and yeah. he gets um, this little well, Nazi thing. So just the idea that people are multi-layered and that, you know, that there may be things that they don't even really acknowledge and that nobody ever really asks about or addresses, but are just sort of lurking in the background. Well, all, all of the main characters, except perhaps Willow have more than one. Yeah. Yeah. Have multiple things. Giles with, um, being lost in the stacks initially and then not being able to read. Um, um, and then, Xander, and then Buffy, yeah, the and then Buffy dying, which even though that's Buffy's nightmare, it's also kind it's of both, Giles. It's both of yeah. theirs. Yeah. yeah, well, he says it's mine. And and Buffy seems, Buffy's more like, it, it seems to me, it's more her failure to defeat the master yeah. than the dying then itself. physical death, yeah. Right, and, and, and which is interesting because it's another place where she fails, where she yeah. feels that she... Inadequate, will fail. Yeah. yeah, it's another yeah. place where she feels inadequate, like with, you know, her father and and all of that. Um, 
but then she also gets the history test and and they're right. and they're escalating um and I, I i like to just really quick um they slipped in a couple dreams which are pretty um common with a lot of people like i think most of us have had that dream where you show up for a test unprepared yeah um, and and i've had willows where that's my standard feeling unprepared dream yeah i, I don't usually have to sing i usually have to be in a play and okay. and i and i get there and i don't know any of the lines right. and it's you have to go out um yeah so which it's kind of they 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 put in ones that are kind of I'm surprised they didn't have the teeth falling out. You know, like one of those dreams <laughs> that everyone's had at least once. Which, you know, with Willow, that that harkens back to the puppet show, yeah, where she runs off in the in the you know epilogue, kind of to the um, when they're doing yeah. their Oedipus. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So they they do all kind of get except for Willow. But um, interesting to point out too that Willow is the one who kind of puts it all together this yeah. time. Yeah. Which I think I want to say is the first time we have someone other than Buffy doing putting it that all together, right? Um, you know, putting that together to say, "Oh, this is what's causing." I mean, not to say that Buffy certainly has her part, and they kind of all put their pieces into it. Buffy's the one who and figures Buffy's out. Buffy's got like five or six nightmares going on at the same time, yeah. So she's yeah. a little some distracted. of which aren't hers, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, so, she's got. Being buried alive, she's turned into a vampire, she can't defeat the master, she's failing her quizzes, she's the cause of her parents' divorce, she's trying to help Billy, she's got a lot going on. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, anyway, so it's, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, she also, uh, there's that, a nice... We've noticed a few Carrie references so far, and I thought there was another one when her hand bursts from the grave. There's that uh, scene at the end of Carrie where yeah. the girl goes to Carrie's grave and, bam, the hand comes out. Well, I'll point out that we are talking about a vampire show where lots of people over the course of the series rise from graves, so that may not be okay, the, last the last time. time yeah. yeah, like I, I, I won't say it's not a reference to Carrie because I, yeah. I can't state that specifically but i think it it just sort of becomes uh a, a, a symbol yeah. of yeah you know this is the a bad thing yeah. yeah the undead rising from the grave so um anyway i do know you wanted to talk a little kind of in our last few minutes here too about um i mean it's kind of related to buffy's dreams or whatever but but sort of the the relationship between her and her parents and and between her yeah. parents themselves um so did did you have something specific there you wanted to talk about or just um, I mean not hugely specific just that I had asked before whether we were ever going to meet Buffy's father and here he is um, right we didn't learn a whole lot about him because most of what we see isn't real life um, right you right. know it, it's sort of all in Buffy's mind and as far as we know only goes as deep as Buffy's fear you know. Right. Uh, we don't get any sense that that's really how he feels. Um, but we learn a few interesting things that, that the divorce is pretty recent. Um, that this wasn't something that they broke up 10 years ago. It's that, I mean, so maybe they've been separated for a while, but she says that it was only, to, it was only finalized a year ago. Um, so, and I mean, it is, well, about, and a, even, it she is says, about a year ago that they, that they moved. And she had, or not moved, but that she had the whole 
burning down the gym at her last. So the timing is a little interesting. And and she doesn't say a year ago. She says last year, which last could be year. calendar year. You right, know, right. we're coming up on the end of the summer, school yeah. year. Yeah. And I will point out that in the movie, her parents are married. Okay. The so, implicate the implication is very strongly, I think, that it that it the actual the divorce happened right after, right after the events yeah. of the movie, which so, is also what causes them to move. So certainly, her fear is not completely unjustified. Um, right. Right. You it, know, but, but the timing but, seems very conspicuous there. Right, and it's it is possible that some of the things that she did is you know would be the last straw. But yeah. in the same way that she says, you know, there are, there's other people in the game to Billy, you know, is you dropping a ball really what lost the game? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, there's other people in this game here. And quite yeah. frankly, Buffy's not even really a player. She's a fan. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, she's, you know, well, yeah. as, as a parent who is divorced, I mean, you know, to blame your kid on anything. And hopefully, yeah. you, you know, there's not, and it doesn't seem like that's what her parents are doing, but clearly those are the feelings that she seems to have because yeah. of her feelings about what has happened in her life and sort of the lens through which she views yeah. everything. Yeah, and, and feeling that her being difficult, you know, was, if not the root cause, was at, le- at the least, you know, a factor, right. you know. And, and, yeah, and Buffy and seems to think to, it's a significant factor. And it's not, hard not to deny that since it followed very closely on the heels of right, what right. happened but at her last school. Yeah, there's obviously a difference between cause and effect and, and coincidence. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, so, yeah, but, you know, I think we do see at the end that at least her fears are somewhat unjustified. You know, her father does show up and, and they yeah. do go off presumably to have a nice weekend and whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and he seems like a nice guy, like a good dad. Um, you know, she doesn't, she kind of says, uh, you know, Willow says like, I know he comes down for weekend. She says, you yeah, know, sometimes, you know, it looks yeah. like he's not hugely enthusiastic. I don't think he's like a doting father that is there all the time. But, right. but he's not an absent father either. You know, he seems somewhat reliable. Yeah. He seems happy to see her, you know. Yeah, yeah. And she's upset when she forgets her bag at home and stuff. Like, I mean, yeah. she, she clear, you know, it's not like it's something she, she doesn't want to. him to be there. Exactly, right, right. Yeah. She looks forward to it. And, yeah. And, and maybe because he's not there every weekend, but only sometimes, you know, maybe yeah. that's part of that. She wants too, to but. make sure nothing goes wrong, that they, you right. know, that they have a good time. Um, and actually, I, so this is unrelated to kind of the divorce stuff, but um, you, you asked if Xander was Jewish earlier, and I meant to say, um, I, we don't get any evidence at all, I think, that Xander is, but certainly Willow is. Her last name is Rosenberg. And, Rosenberg. And, I did notice that, yeah. And, and her, um, her, her, you know, Jewish heritage comes up um, oh, okay. at, least, at least later in the series, if not. Um, right away. I mean, it kind of in passing, like it's not like a huge thing, but you know, I mean, they're using crosses to defend vampires and stuff. And, you know, there's episodes that talk about Christmas and stuff. So, I mean, like kind of, Uh it's not like a huge aspect of anything, but, but it does come up. So I just figured I'd point that out. So not that I think that that justifies, or I'm not that you have to justify various comments about Nazis, but 
I don't. I mean, I don't think that's what Xander was necessarily thinking about when he was saying or when there were Nazi symbols and in the background. And not that you have to be yeah. Jewish to fear Nazis, you know. I mean, right, right. Certainly doesn't help, but um, but I think that could be a that could be something that's disturbing to somebody, regardless of their cultural heritage and everything. Yeah. No, I I think so as well. And and, um, I, and I do think that the idea maybe is less how specifically Xander is afraid of them than just trying to slip in those little details, you know, those, those little things that sort of flesh out a character. Yeah. Um, and you don't necessarily know why it's important to him, but but it seems to be. It's just sort of <laughs> uncommented upon. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have I to... I like that a lot. We'll have to keep our eyes and ears open for other Nazi references, Nazi references. I, I suppose. Um, anyway, so... There's no, like, smooth way to transition into Doctor Who this week. Um, so I guess we're just yeah. going to do it. Um, the Doctor dances. The Doctor dances. He does dance. He dances. <laughs> Apparently, we are told he dances, and yeah. we see him dancing. Um, so I wanted to talk, and I wanted to talk about the Doctor first. So I, I really, I mean, it's a two-parter. And, again, you know, once again, we start out right, pick up right where the last one left off. Yeah. And the first thing's out of his mouth is go to your room. <laughs> he tells the menacing, slow moving, um, hybrid DNA monsters to go to their room and they listen to him. And they do. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Oh, okay. He's very upset. I go to your room. I'm very angry. Um, and, and they go to their room and, and yeah, wow, that worked. All right. Those would have been horrible last words. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Again, I, that that comedy and the horror blended together. Yeah, no, it. I, I mean, it, it was good. It was. I have to admit, I did not see that one coming. Um, <laughs> I did not see that resolution coming, and and Neither it's kind of funny doctor. because it's almost like a whim that he's be, like, Man, yeah, can't believe that worked. <laughs> well, yeah, he's just you know quick thinking or whatever. But it it's funny because I mean. It does work. Like, I mean, from, like, a plot device, it kind of does work. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not well, just that. Well, it kind of, it's the whatever remnants of Jamie are still inside of the child that will obey when an Right, adult... well, and the fixation on mommy. He's looking for an authority figure. Yeah. And, yeah. and the doctor provides that. And, of course, you know, when the monster finds out the doctor isn't really his mommy. But in the moment, he doesn't question it. He's yeah. like, okay, I have to, like, any... I think any five-year-old kid would. You know, yeah. you're not my mommy, but wait a minute. You are telling, telling me, me to what to, to do. Yeah. And so, okay. I mean, not all children do that, but I think a lot of them would if faced with the proper amount of authority and confidence, which the doctor certainly exhibits. And, yeah. you know, which is sort of a trait that doctors, small small D doctors mm -hmm. have. You know, like it's it's that you listen to them. They're a doctor. They know what they're doing. They know what they're saying. They're... They intelligent. know what's best for you. Yeah. They're intelligent and confident, and they know things you don't. And so you, you you do kind of just listen to what they say. And so I think that's interesting because that contrasts with what we see later in the Doctor's insecurity and, mm -hmm. and, and um, Captain Envy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that he has or that he seems to be exhibiting um, later when... when um, him and Rose are trapped in the, you know, in the hospital there waiting for Jack to 
hopefully come back and rescue them. At least hopefully yeah. in Rose's eyes. She's looking at things through rose-colored glasses, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and, and that, sorry, that was a horrible pun. I just have to acknowledge <laughs> that. The, um, no, but, but I do think that, that his authority and confidence right there in the beginning contrasts with that. And so, so you have to kind of, I mean, it kind of forces you to look at the doctor's personality in, in those two ways as, you know, why does, and I don't, I mean, I don't think he's super unconfident, but he's super unconfident, super insecure later. But I mean, he does no, exhibit he's that. not like at Xander levels of no, insecurity. No, no, no. No, but he does that. He, you know, he has that sort of defensiveness. Well, you just assume that I don't dance, dance um, yeah. and and you just assume that I don't date is and do other things you might do on dates like dancing. Yeah. Um, you know the the yeah. So the I mean the insecurity is kind of there, but it's not like yeah. You're right. It's not Xander level, but it is it is a contrast to that authority and confidence that he has earlier. Yeah. Well, and I think. Maybe the insecurity isn't his sort of M.O. It's not something that he's plagued with all the time. It, it's more maybe in relation to Rose specifically. That it's, it's when Rose is looking at somebody else that he... That no, whoa, sort of, where'd you pick this one up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that's when the, yeah. the jealousy or the insecurity sort of rears its head a little bit more. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, so so the dancing, so um, <laughs> the dancing. Are we talking da- about dancing? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, uh, are we talking about dancing? Or are we talking about dancing? Dancing. So I mean, <laughs> uh, very explicitly, Moffat and everyone in the in the back, behind the scenes, you know, will say that this is all a big euphemism. And it's all subtext, you know, and what does dancing signify? Sure. Um, and, you know, I kind of, and we talked a little bit about this, about the doctor in the classic show always kind of being portrayed as kind of unemotional and pretty much asexual, you know, that he isn't ever getting involved with anybody in a... Yes. romantic well, way so i mean i kind of see this as them saying up front i mean the title tells you the doctor dances so this is <laughs> this is like russell yeah you Davies, know what's going to happen russell davies and stephen moffat saying the doctor is capable of being romantic and being interested and you know and so the dancing i mean they're kind of talking about dancing but not really. They're but we all know what dancing leads to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought it was really interesting <laughs> that I, I mean, that I kind of got, you know. Right. You, you, yeah. you kind of get that well, dancing you mean is. Because they hit you over the head with because it? Because they hit you over the head yeah. a billion gajillion times. But um, one thing I wouldn't necessarily have got without Moffat's help was um, him saying that the whole episode is that there's this motif of sexual repression. So mm. we have the idea of the question of whether or not the doctor dances, you know, has he sure. danced, does he know how to dance, you know, all these <laughs> things. Um, but then you also have Jack's... Um, flexibility. Homo- his flexibility, his 
homosexuality or omnisexuality or yeah, bisexuality. multisexual, but yeah, yeah omni might um, be a better word. Yeah, yeah. And then also with that, you've got uh, that man uh, that that tries to call the police on Nancy, who's having yeah, an affair Mr. with the Lloyd. butcher. Yeah, he's having an affair with the butcher. Right. Um, and then you've got yeah, Nancy. I didn't see that coming. No, and then you've got Nancy, who's right covering up yes. the fact that she's a single mother. You know, in nineteen forty-one, very young single mother, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a teenage single mother in the forties. Right. So, right. um, so there is this motif of um, repressed sexuality and repressed, you know, you know, I, that 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 kind, all of those discussions, which I think go over the head of the eight-year-olds watching the show, but um, but for the adult viewer you know, yeah. are, are kind of become increasingly obvious. Right. Right. No. And, and yeah. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, she outright states about Mr. Lloyd having the affair. So, I mean, yeah. that's, that's Pretty right there explicit. and you get, yeah. and you get the explanation of the single mother, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite put that all together into, into like a theme of the episode. No, so to speak. no, so that's, and I didn't either. That's very interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah. So, well, going back, to the doctor, of course, yeah, you get the, you get the distinct impression, and of course, he, he says, you know, 900 years old, me, I've been around a bit, you can assume I, at some point I've danced. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, uh, well, and there's the whole comparison of sonic devices. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the sort of blustering, um, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah the <laughs> screwdriver becomes a figure of fun. In yeah, the episode, yeah. and all, and it's all about it, it. You know, he's embarrassed by it. It's, you know, <laughs> doctor, I've got you know this gun which can do all these different things. What do you have? I've got a. Uh, never mind. Uh, yeah. it's, it's it's Sonic. Just leave it at that. I'm Sonic. I'm Sonic'd up. Don't talk about it. And <laughs> and then and then no sooner does he explain that it's a screwdriver that Jack immediately starts making fun of it. You know. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's all about. The but comparison of course, and the competition and Jack's uh, super high tech uh, blaster, the, the bigger, fancier tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Jack's uh, super high tech blaster. There is the one that stops working, you know. And, right, uh, right. And uh, right, the screwdriver can do anything. <laughs> oh man, it's hilarious. Um, so, so yeah. So Jack, he's um, high. I don't know if I just didn't pick up on it on the last episode. Um, but yeah, I, I was a little, um, surprised when, yeah. when, when uh, maybe as much as Rose, not quite as much as Rose was, Rose seemed even more surprised, I guess. But, yeah. um, when we find out that, that he is a, a flexible dancer, right. he, he, uh, you know, and that's good for him you know he's 51st century guy he, he he's secure with himself in that way it seems um but we do get and you were making this point kind of earlier before we started recording that jack is sort of the inverse of the doctor um in that he does have this sort of suave confident exterior whereas the doctor is kind of goofy and whatever but Jack doesn't really know what he's doing all the time. He's just sort of kind of lives with the flow and, and you know, um, I, I, I was especially intrigued by the fact that, like, he's 
you know, where the doctor has authority and confidence, he also takes responsibility. Yeah. But Jack doesn't. He's in complete denial for most of the episode yeah. until the very end that his actions really have any broader consequences. And I yeah. think that that, like, you get this sort of sense that, yes, he is putting on a front. He looks, mm -hmm. he seems so suave and confident because it's all a facade. It's slick. It's, it's, it's you know, the gelled slick back hair. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it, it, but he's not, he, he doesn't take responsibility for his actions. And he doesn't, he doesn't even know part of what he's done in his whole life. And, and he even has that one moment where, that seems genuine where he says, you know, to Rose, he says, your friend over there doesn't trust me. And, and for all I know, he's right. Yeah. You know, and that that's, you know, he's still searching kind yeah. of literally and metaphorically for his identity. He, yeah. he, he doesn't know what's going on. And, and of course, in court, we get the big reveal that, um, you know, he woke up one day and he was missing two years of his life. And I, immediately thought oh my god he's Sidney Bristow from <laughs> Alias um I don't know if you've ever watched that show or not but um, uh, I have it but I know yeah. I, I'm I know what the reference yeah okay so uh, there's yeah an end of a season where she wakes up and it's two years later and uh -huh. yeah anyway so the uh but no he you know we understand that he used to work for the time agency and they kind of used him in in a not so savory way to him it seems or at least or he doesn't know he doesn't know how they used him so right. i guess jury's still out so to speak but the fact that he doesn't know seems like it probably wasn't something he would have approved of um yeah. had he had he known <laughs> had he known about it so um but yeah i mean so it, it's it, that's all interesting because we do get that inverse sort of relationship between the doctor and jack and and their differing levels of confidence and responsibility and insecurity and all of that. But then what's even more interesting uh -huh. <laughs> is how Rose sees the two of them. Uh -huh. And, and when the doctor is, you know, saying, well, she asked the doctor, why don't you trust him? And he asked, you know, right back and sort of snaps at her. Well, why do you? Well, cause he saved my life, you know, Blowquise, that's right up there with Flossen. Um, <laughs> but but then she goes on to explain that she trusts him because, she says, because he's like you, except for the dating and dancing. Yeah. And and so it's, it's interesting that she sees them as being similar. Yeah. Um, it, except you know, that she doesn't see the doctor as a man. That she says, why do you... Why do, the good-looking ones always do this. And he says, <laughs> well, yes, yes, all right, so. I'll try not to be insulted. And she says, no, men. And he goes, oh, thanks. That really yeah, helps. So, that really helps. Yeah. So she, and, she trusts you kind of, people who are like the doctor, but he has this addition of being right. a romantic option for her. Whereas at this point, maybe she doesn't see the doctor as, as that. You know, that mm. he doesn't dance in her view. Right, right, right. He's just a friend. He's just a friend. <laughs> um, before I forget, I want to make a point about uh, the memory thing with Jack. Um, that that's yeah. something that Moffat just slipped in, like kind of for no reason. Like, um, I'm going to put in this this subplot about Jack's memories being lost. Okay. And, Rus and Russell Davies was like, "Where did that come from?" Moffat's like, "I don't know. I just..." thought it was a good idea and then russell's like all, all right i'll 
do something with it. And then he never did anything with it. Oh, no. He, like, so we don't find out? No. Oh, no. We have, I mean, as far as I know, I mean, I don't think we ever do. Or, I mean, the show the show's is still, still going on. Still so going. So maybe someday, they could. Yeah. maybe like 10 years from now, someday they'll pick up that plot thread. But uh. I think it's hysterical that. Yeah, that, previously on Doctor Who 10 years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, this, hey, you'd be surprised. No, well, wait, I, well the show's been around see, 50 wait years. Wait until we see how long it takes them to pick up some plot points. Um, oh, that geez. is not outside of the realm of possibility. But okay. I think it's really funny that that Moffat just put that in and is like, here you go, Russell, do something with that. And Russell, like, right. literally forgot. He's like, uh, like, after the season and whatever was over, they were like, you know what? We never actually addressed the idea what happened to Jack's memory. And then so six seasons later, they're still not addressing it. Six seasons later, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. All right. All not right. that I, I don't. Well, I don't, I don't think e- they have. I was gonna. I mean, I'm assuming that Jack is still around six seasons later. That I guess I don't. Shouldn't make that assumption. So. Well, and even if even if he's not, that doesn't mean they couldn't. Go back and the see. Plot. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So Yeah, um, I mean they're 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 all time travelers. Exactly, so they could yeah. meet up anywhere at any time per se. So yeah. So no. As of this point, I believe that is still a dangling plot thread. Yeah. Um Yeah. So um, But I mean the larger point of Jack being someone who is mostly facade and and doesn't really know who he is underneath still stands. Um, I think that right. still works with the character. And by the end of the episode, I feel like he and the doctor both resolve a certain amount of those identity questions, you know, that Jack, you know, I mean, I think you're right. Like he sees himself. I mean, he says like, I like to think of myself as a criminal, but he's not like a hardened <laughs> criminal. He only, yeah, he I'm only, sure you do. He only performs what he <laughs> thinks are victimless crimes, you know? Right, so it's right, right. revenge against the time agency and oh, yeah. I've harmed no one. I mean, right. now that's not true. And once he realizes that, he does step up to the plate and is willing to, he traps right. the bomb and flies it away and, you know, and tries to eject it. And when he realizes he can't, he kind of calmly accepts his fate, uh, you know. Um, yeah, he, and, well. And, yeah. and conversely, the doctor, um, you know, that that confidence that we see in the beginning with go to your room um, comes out again at the end, I think, when he puts all the pieces together and realizes what happened and knows how to fix it and figures everything out and once again becomes the authority figure, you know. Right, um, right. And then, which is followed by him remembering how to dance and also... Re- reclaiming a side of life that maybe has been repressed or has mm. been, you know, forgotten about. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I think each of them kind of fulfill that, you know, maybe not completely. You know, I'm sure there's no, no, issues there's still they're still dealing growth. with, but you know, by the end, Jack does become this kind of hero, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. and the Doctor has this moment of joyful, you know, celebration yeah. of life. I mean, his joy at the idea that 
yeah. everybody lives and I save the day and I'm on fire and I can do anything and I'm going to dance with Rose and get out of the way, Jack. This is my moment, you know. Right, right. So I think Yeah, it's yeah get out of the way. Go take that bomb into your ship and blow up. <laughs> well, well, I meant more when, when Rose says, when Rose says, I think Jack would like this dance. And Doctor's like, screw that. I'm dancing oh, with you. Oh, okay. So later. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, he can but wait. But who would he like it with? Exactly. Yes. Oh, but who yeah. would? Um, yeah. So I think they kind of both, you know, well, and, reach and the a very... new level of identity and, and wholeness in their characters. Yeah, and, and the very willingness, I think, to invite Jack into the TARDIS um, yeah. shows that, you know, he, he you're right. He is back. He is confident. Um, he, and, he you know, I don't... Kind of, and he kind of comes around for Jack, I think, because he says to Rose, he's not a captain. But by the end, he's calling him. He says, like, Captain, go secure those gates. Like, well, it's like... Yeah, but is that, you know, is that his... I mean, he calls Mickey Ricky, too. So, like... No, I think, I think he means <laughs> is... it. Yeah. Is there a difference there? I think there's a difference, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, that's good. I do like Jack better than Mickey, so <laughs> I will say that much. But um, not not that I want to dance with him and not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with dancing with him. But there's, you know, um, anyway. So the the I think you're right. I think that by the end of the episode, there is some resolution there. Um but you know, hopefully not too much because there's more episodes to come, and hopefully yeah, they no, they no. continue to butt heads again. So yeah, um, the uh, so and of course we get we get sort of the um, well, I, well, where do we want to go with this? I, I want to talk. I want to talk both about some of the technology because we get some of the technological stuff, and maybe maybe we should talk about that now because Jack's ship blows up. Yeah. Even though it's the cool, sleek, you know, Chula warship that, um, you know, can can go invisible and do all of these cool things, and yet is cramped inside, um, and he gets he gets brought into the TARDIS. So I that seems a little bit symbolic. Certainly, I think kind of supporting your point, even just from a you know from the characteristic standpoint, like his his ship is gone. He doesn't have sort of the cool toys anymore to mm-hmm. show off and and make himself look cool. He you know, Jack just kinda has to rely on his personality from here on out. Yeah. Um and and being invited into that into the TARDIS, which is, you know, plain looking on the outside and bigger on the inside. Yeah. Um interesting. And also, you know, just going back to his comment about the retro look of the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but the nanogenes. Yeah. So these are, I guess these are in a way, the monster of the week because they're sure. what's causing the all of this yeah. Uh, mayhem, yeah, and, and weirdness. Um, so are, is there like with the nanogenes? Is there something beyond what we're seeing here? Like, or I mean, are we we going to see these again? Maybe you don't want to give away too much if we are, or is this just kind of like the no, this is a solution for this week, and <laughs> that's kind um, of where we leave yeah, it. Yeah, I don't. I can't think that they ever become hugely significant again. They may get mentioned occasionally, just as a, a okay. type of technology that exists. But I think there's a few points which are important. Um, so one, which 
will become a pretty significant, this is the first, um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I think this is the first appearance of this sort of motif, which we will see a few more times of um, technology not understanding, like when you get to advanced technology, so technology that is kind of self-sustaining or artificially intelligent or whatever, like they're not just, that they're little subatomic robots, right? So they're going out and doing a job. And there's this motif of technology trying to do its job and misunderstanding because it's not sentient, because it's technological, misunderstanding its job and causing mm. havoc because it doesn't, you know, when you take people out of the equation who know what it is that they're supposed to be doing, then, you know, it, it's like they're trying to help, but they're getting mm. it wrong. So they're trying to heal people, but they don't know what people are supposed to be like. And so they right. end up, you know, running around the city, converting all these people into these zombie creatures um, mm -hmm. because they're confused. Um, so it's kind of, and it's one of those things where they are the monster of the week, but they're not like, they're not a monster in the sense that they're not evil. They're not trying to, they're trying to do the right thing. It's just right. a technology that doesn't understand its role. And then if you don't know how to stop it, you know, right. you're kind of at the mercy of whatever it is. And that's, it, that's something we'll see again, you know, with other stories in the future. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about, which I think is more important to this episode and to the nanogenes, and again, I don't think we're meant to see the nanogenes as evil. I think they're... No, no. They're, it's, just, it's just confused technology, but... Um, yeah, I was trying. To, I was trying to think. I mean, we get the autons right from the first episode, but they're under control of something right, else. By, like they're not. Right. The it's not like just technology. Right. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything else. Yeah, like everything you were saying we've had that. so far, I think, has been more a monster, which has had yeah a motive or something under the manipulation of someone else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is the first time where it's almost like accidental. Like it's just a freak of technology, and it's no one's fault. I mean, other than Jax for being careless, but right. But it's not. It's not an invading monster. It's not anything with a motive. It's just technology going awry. Um, and so then, the other thing which I thought was interesting was um, in the doctor's sort of explanation at the end of what they are and what they're doing. He says that they think they know what people should look like and they're making it their mission to fix everyone. And in a story about World War II, right. I thought that kind of resonated with, you know, yeah. I, I don't mean to suggest that the Nazi, you know, genetic clean and racial cleansing was in any way accidental, you know, that clearly there was human evil behind that. But, but that's a, those lines to me are resonant of, you know. Oh, and there's our fixing. tie back to Buffy, by the way, the Nazis. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. I, there has to be they are pretty right? scary. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it, you were making like this really serious point, and I just ruined it. But no, um, but just just the idea of um, of 
difference being eliminated and people being made to fixed to be so the idea that certain kinds of people are better than others and the horror of of anything be it technology or be it people who make it their mission to fix everyone and mm -hmm. to get rid of anything that's impure or you know or in their view impure um Right. And that kind of horror element of that. Um, I just thought that was kind of a neat parallel. Yeah, no, that is interesting. And and, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that, that works uh, on that level. I mean, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, beyond just the killing and racial cleansing, I mean, they also had the eugenics program, which very much ties into the manipulation of DNA and, yeah. and, and you know, trying to build the master race, so to speak. And... and Hmm. That's an interesting, interesting comparison there. Um, I'd like to talk about Nancy a little bit in our last, well, we have, we have maybe another 15 minutes here. Okay. The, the, so, I mean, she's the mother uh -huh. that the kid has been looking for. And, and again, we get the kid kind of asserting his influence on everybody else another tie there to buffy like his yeah looking yeah. for the mother is is These little boys you know becomes, ripping down the worlds around them because yeah. they're scared yeah um so the uh it wasn't so it was about as surprising to me that nancy was the mother as it was surprising to you that angel was a vampire yeah <laughs> um like once they say it, you're kind of like, oh yeah, of uh -huh. course, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that makes sense, and you get and you remember the little moments. And a part I, of I, you knew it all. Along. I went, yeah. I went back and and rewatched the episode, and of course you get the moments, yeah, where you know she's telling the group of scared kids, and you know wherever they're hiding out there, um, you know, she, as she's leaving, she's like, chew your food, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you know, just little things like that. Where and and obviously she's she's very resourceful and and in taking care of these kids and has adopted them very motherly like and 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 you know is is um you know looking out for them and they look up to her just like you know we get that moment of the doctor's authority she's very much someone who has authority with with these children because because she's taking care of them because she's the one you know who quote knows what to do even when she may not always know what to do mm -hmm. um but yeah she and 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 so yeah we already talked about her sort of blackmailing of mr lloyd with his um relationship with the butcher there but it's not like it's not just to get out of something right it's not it's not like she's just blackmailing him so that she can escape she has a purpose in mind she's yeah. she's um you know, looking to go find out what happened and, and um, kind of in the same way that Jack was not taking responsibility until that moment, mm -hmm. it seems like she hadn't been taking full responsibility for her situation. I don't, I mean, I don't even, I, we don't know the situation of how she got pregnant at such a young age or right. anything. I mean, there's probably a hundred different possible explanations yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, and we don't really know any of them and it almost doesn't matter because whatever happened now at this point she has this situation and she hasn't been kind of taking full responsibility even though she's been taking care of these other kids mm -hmm. you know 
she hasn't even owned up to the fact that she is right a mother, Jamie's mother. Right, and, and it's like, and it's like she couldn't have prevented him. I mean, it wasn't her fault that he got killed by a bomb. It's not her fault that the nanogenes converted him or whatever. But there is a shared responsibility in that she she knows she's the mother, and she's running away from that. Again, yeah. confronting your fear, right? That right. she's by uh, by not admitting. It's when she admits that I'm your mother. Mm-hmm. That's what allows the nanogenes because they recognize her DNA in him and recognize that she's the superior. So he needs to change to be like her rather than vice yeah. versa. And, so and the implication telling that the truth is what allows that to happen. Right, and the implication is that. If she had done that at any time, they, the nanogenes would have recognized the DNA because sure. they're robots. It's not like something changed in the nanogenes to make her like. It's not like right, the doctor's yeah. presence or Rose's presence or anyone else's presence helped the nanogenes. It's just that they the doctor needed, is what helped yeah. Nancy to recognize that she needed to take the responsibility. Yeah, had they she need done a that reference, at, yeah. at at any point in time, had she gone up to you know Zombie Jamie and said. Yes, I am your mother, and hugged yeah. him the way that she did there. Everything might have been fixed without the fear and and yeah. the you know the problems that kind of went along with that. So it's yeah. And again, you're right. It's not like she causes any of that, or and it's not her fault. But she does have a power, or she does have a responsibility, if you want to call it that, to to sort of own up to to what is true and and it's as simple as saying yes i am your mother and come here i love you anyway you know it's yeah like and that's but it takes her a while to get that yeah um yeah well and you kind of get the idea that i mean part of it is because he's this horrible monster that she's yeah, afraid sure. of yeah and, but oh, the there's, other, and there's certainly reasons why yeah, like you know she would be afraid of part that. of it is that she never told him that she was the mother, even when she, she right. told him that she was a sister too. So that that's something that she was afraid to tell him even before the whole thing with the nanogenes. Right, right, exactly. And maybe if he'd, maybe if he'd known that when he died, then maybe the nanogenes would have even been able to figure it out sooner too because he would have known she's the mother. Mm. You know, but he's, because he doesn't know who the mother is, that's right. why he's wandering aimlessly around the city looking for anybody, you know. Um, whereas he might have had a clear idea. Who, I, who do I need to go to for help? I need my mother, and it's her. Right. Well, yeah, and it's, and it's very logical that she wouldn't necessarily think that she would be the one who could fix all this. Well, I mean, of course she, not. Yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah. she, she sees everyone else who gets touched by him being and turned into the same too, yeah. zombies. Yeah. There's no reason why she would necessarily believe that her case would be different, but yeah. yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's the thing. It's not, it doesn't have anything really to do with logic or, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just that acceptance of, yes, this is the way things are. And, and, and I'm you know, here for you. Yeah. And I'm here for you regardless of whether you're a gas mask uh, zombie, <laughs> right? I guess, a gas mask. Um, but she is resourceful. She she blackmails Mister Lloyd, gets the tools she needs. Once once she kind of accepts that responsibility, she she finds a way to, you know, come about and and 
do what she needs to boot, uh, uh, do what she needs to do. Um, you know, she's in, in that room trapped with the guy, you know, the soldier who's becoming a mom, uh, yeah. a mommy zombie and, <laughs> and how many different kinds of zombies are they? I don't know. Um, how many different ways can we talk about these yeah. monsters? Um, and of course, what does she do? She sings them a lullaby yeah. <laughs> to lull them to sleep. Um, you know, very quick thinking, very, um, very good stuff yeah. there. And again, the same thing as with Go to Your Room. That's the remnants of Jamie inside that the lullaby has an effect on it. And the, the monster responds to right. the comfort and the authority of the mother. Um, yeah. So it, things that, you know, I think maybe the first time I saw it, I would have thought it a little silly that Go to Your Room would work or that the lullaby would work. But then when you get to the end and you realize what the story's about, then that actually does make a kind of logic. Right, right. Well, yeah, and that's what I was trying to say earlier. Just, I, I think it does, I think it does work. They go to your room. Yeah. Like, surprisingly works. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it makes sense in the context. Once, yeah, I think you're right. We, you know, once we do kind of know everything, we have to, it works in retrospect, maybe. Yeah. Right at the moment, it might feel like a, like a you know, just sort of some, yeah. some hand waving going on, but yeah. but I I do think it works. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Anyway, so that I, you know I don't and I don't know what else there is to say about Nancy, but I did want to make sure we talked about her because I think that's you know she 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 is resourceful, she is whatever, and in the end, kind of like Jack, she steps up, takes, and and I, and I actually I mean, but she isn't like jack too because she has been taking responsibility all along it's just she's been taking on responsibilities that weren't necessarily hers yeah and right. it wasn't because it, because she's in denial of other things yeah yeah and 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 afraid of repercussions i mean yeah. of of people finding out that she's a single mother and yeah. had been a teenage single mother and and all of that yeah um and and of course i mean we haven't talked a lot about rose but I think in each of these cases, we see Rose's significance as the one to kind of elicit that change or, or yeah. to, you know, pull that change out of the situation. Um, certainly between the doctor and Jack, I mean, that seemed almost explicit, like she's the focal point for yeah. the two of them. Um, you know, or the fulcrum kind of between them, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. one, if you're thinking of a seesaw and, and, you know, Jack is down while the doctor's up and then yeah. they just kind of switch and go the other way. Like, right. and, well, and, and Rose is in the middle. And she is um, wanting to, she like, when she thinks Jack is abandoning them, she kind of is like Jack, like she's wanting him to like step up and take yeah. responsibility. And, yeah. and at the same time, she's the one Showing the doctor how to dance and bringing him out, giving him this fuller appreciation of life again. So she's the one bringing out those sides of themselves, which are sort of hidden away. Right. Um, and you're and, right. And she does it and with she Nancy, does, too. She does it with Nancy. Yeah. yeah. She, you know, she's the one. Um, yeah. Giving, I, well, she gives it, giving her hope about the future. That I right, know, right. I know it seems hopeless. I know it looks like the end, but it's not. Right, right. Um, yeah, I don't want to beat that to a pulp, but I just, I, I think that's an important. And so I guess you know, even when it seems like sometimes Rose isn't isn't that um, 
Fogel character. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, there have been a number of episodes where she hasn't been, but I think it is important to remember that that's, I mean, in her sort of role as companion, she's she is companioning. <laughs> she's, yeah. you know, she's, she, she's actively doing something even when it seems like maybe she's not, or even when it seems like she's just getting into trouble and, and being annoying or, you know, sitting in a wheelchair, you know, rolling around, like, yeah. you know, or grabbing onto barge balloons and, and going floating in the sky. Like, you know, she does a lot of stuff in these last two episodes that haven't exactly been helpful in yeah. a way, <laughs> as far as like practically helpful, but yeah. she's, she has been that support to, yeah. um, right. Right. It, what, what does she bring out in other people? Yeah. Um, but then she does occasionally have practical, you know, yeah, uh, I, like, I don't mean to dismiss her like that. No, in that way at all. And I know you don't mean that, uh, you know, that that's all she does. I mean, you know, but, but then there are things like, um, pointing the gun at the floor, like occasionally, you know, and I mean, I think it makes sense. I mean, she's Mm -hmm. not, she's not a time traveler. She's not a time agent from the future. She's not a genius. She's a normal person. So I think most of the time it kind of makes sense that her contribution is rather limited, you know, and then every so often you get things like, you know, a good idea, like to point the gun at the floor and, you know, whatever. But, but I think you're right. Most of the time her contribution is in her relationship to other characters and what does, what, what influence does she have and what sides of them does she bring out? Right. Very good. Um, well, did you have anything else with the doctor who here that we sort of missed or, lost over um well the only thing i kind of wanted to mention just because i feel like it's a term that maybe i'd like to use again in the future so i want to define it for anybody listening is that the end of this episode to me um feels very you catastrophic um and ah. actually we should quickly talk about a point you made before we started watching that so you catastrophe is a tolkienian coined phrase, um, which he specifically identifies with fairy tales. Um, and even yeah. though Doctor Who is sci-fi, I think there's a heavy dollop of fairy tale in there, too. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, so the idea being that a catastrophe is a sudden turn from good to bad, you catastrophe is the opposite. It's a sudden, yeah. unpredicted and unpredictable turn from bad to good. And that that's the- the turn of the happy ending is what gives you that lift of joy at the end of a fairy tale. That that's yeah. their defining and, characteristic. And 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 the 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 obligatory Tolkien reference there is the eagles are coming. The yeah. eagles are coming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it, yeah. it's that moment which doesn't necessarily mean that the eagles are the cause of the catastrophe. It's it's more a signifier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a symptom or a sig- signal of. A, the, that turn of events that you're talking about. Yeah, so I feel like this episode, you know, kind of achieves that you catastrophe. You know that I mean, oh, it's yeah. kind of foreshadowed in in Rose's talk to Nancy about this isn't the end. I know it looks like it is, but there's always mm. you know kind of hope in the darkest hour kind of thing. Um, Man, now also, that you brought up Tolkien, I'm thinking of all these like other Tolkien references, Tolkien references. like you know, you know Sam. And yeah, anyway, okay. Go ahead, go ahead. Keep talking. Um, 
Yeah, like there's the star <laughs> up in the, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. beyond the dark. Just because, know, whatever. just because we can't see them, yeah, there's yeah, still stars out there. Yeah, they're not there. Um, yeah. And that it seems like the end of the world when you're in it, but when yep. you have a larger perspective, you can see how it's just a momentary thing. Um, and then just the doctor's just his joy at the end that yes everybody lives and yes. i need more days like he is so you can see how rare it is for him that yes. that we have this moment where uh where really the evil is undone and out of you know out of darkness comes you know this wonderful resolution um and yeah. i even thought um the the last few moments with jack kind of achieve that too that you feel like there's this kind of slow realization of Jack's that you know it's kind of funny but it's kind of sad at the same time as he's eliminating all the options for escape and then he kind of realizes well there's nothing left to do but break out the martinis and you know yeah um and then the way that it ends on a frame of him and slowly the camera pulls back and back and you think it's going to be a fade to black and what a tragic end for the character. And then it just pulls through the door and you realize you hear the Glenn Miller in the background and you see <laughs> the walls of the TARDIS around you and you realize, yeah. oh no, they're going to get him out. And, and I feel like that's kind of a nice, another little catastrophe that, you know, mm. that, that shot construction I just think is really beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it ends again, it ends in, Everybody lives and it ends in joy and dancing and everyone's right. having a good time. Well, so yeah, I and... feel like this is one of the most joyful episodes, you know, for as dark and I mean, we've also said it's the scariest one so far. So which, these two which, together, these yeah, two, which make the catastrophe all the more potent because of how terrifying and dark it was before, you know, that that resolution feels all the more you know, poignant, right. I think. Well, and, and when we, you know, of course, when he says that, yeah, I, I think you're right. That is absolutely a, a moment of you catastrophe. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great. And, and, and when we sort when I, when we sort of realize that we're talking about the episode, that's why we had to name it <laughs> just this once. Everybody, everybody lives, lives yeah. because the same thing in Buffy that we don't get a lot of episodes where everybody lives. And I, Nobody dies this episode in Buffy, except for yeah. in her dreams, yeah. except for her fear of, of death. And, of course, yeah. you know, the, the vampire stuff. But that's all dream. You know, and, that's but, dream. But like that's not... this episode of Doctor Who, it's it's undone. It's one of the rare times when the evil can be right. undone and, and completely mended. Yeah. Um, as if it had never been. Um, yeah. And and. Yeah, no, that's that's all that's all great. I'm trying I'm trying to think if if that's true. If there are any other episodes that we've seen of Buffy where we haven't had someone die, and I I think it may I think maybe the someone had. One. I think it may be the only one so far where where someone hasn't died. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're rare in they're rare in Doctor Who too. That at least a su a supporting character or innocent bystanders right. or somebody. Um, or somebody doesn't, you know, pay the ultimate price. You know, the, yeah. the doctor usually can't save everybody. Right. Well, and and yeah, the doctor saving everybody, and and that's 
um, maybe this is what you were referring to about what we were talking before we started recording, but the, I mean, everybody lives yeah. within the doctor's purview. Yeah. We are talking about London in the middle of the Blitz yeah. and bombs are falling everywhere. There are people dying. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, around, around them, there are people dying. So yeah. like, it's, you know, it's not like, it's not completely, but within his power, within his yeah. control and within his, within his purview, within you, uh, you use the word jurisdiction, I think earlier, even like it's, it, I think it's something that, um, you know, we just need to recognize the doctor has stated before, like, um, we saw with episode two, was it the end of the world where he, the doctor, he's not there to save earth all the time mm-hmm. in every way possible. Like, Sometimes some things just happen uh, or have to happen in the normal course of history and and people living their lives. But even in that episode in, in End of the World where we get that sense of, you know, when there is something wrong, when there's something not going the way it should be going, even even though there are a lot of things that feel like they shouldn't be happening yeah um but at least like you know in in the sense of like there's there's someone actively interfering with the way time should be running normally yeah um that's where the doctor steps in and he does it in end of the world he steps in to save the people on um well all the aliens who we decided were in fact people um on that um space station but you know in this case too you know, he, he's not there to stop the war. Like, he's not going to go kill Hitler. Right. Um, or, you know, do whatever needs to be done to stop the war. But he is there to at least stop this complete eradication of humanity on the planet Earth, you know, yeah. through through these nanogenes. And, right. and he is able to do that. And he does it successfully without anybody dying from that particular cause. Yeah, well, and, you get the sense that it's, you know human the the normal course of human history of human conflict isn't his business what's his business is the alien interference in humanity yeah. well and it's allowing he, that normal yeah. course to flow yeah. yeah yeah um and it yeah and and i think so and again i think like tolkien says like the eucatastrophe doesn't deny the reality of loss and disaster and pain. And in fact, the reality of those things is what gives it its punch. That it's mm. not saying eucatastrophe would have no effect if it was all the time. It's that it's that occasional and unexpected and undeserved note of grace, which flies in the face of the reality of the loss and the pain. So I think even the fact that, you know, so everyone doesn't live in the sense that the doctor can't and won't even try to save everyone in history. But when he can have a moment of victory, it's almost like the bleakness of the wider setting adds an even further note of joy to the resolution of this story. That even with it's because there are people dying all around them that there is even more triumph to them achieving what they're able to do and saving the lives of these people. So yeah. I think the fact that it, you know, it, it, there are bombs dropping and it's at night and it's scary that visually then his sort of 
you know, over the top exuberance to the boy is a very right. poignant image, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think I think that's a good note to end on. Unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about. The final note, which will take us out, is just to say that these two episodes uh, won the Hugo, the 2006 oh. Hugo. Um, they were up against uh, an episode of Battlestar Galactica, um, several short uh, short films, and the other Doctor Who episodes that I mentioned, which were Dalek and Father's Day. Um, okay. But but. The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances won the prize that year. Very cool. So. Very cool. That's it. So we began on production notes and ended on production notes. Well, ended on award notes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. Very nice. All right. Well, then I guess we'll call it a wrap and we'll talk to you guys next week. See you then. Mm -hmm.